Well, it's going to take more than fancy talk to keep me up all night crawling around these bushes. I, I watched him for 15 years, sitting in a room, staring at a wall, not seeing the wall, looking past the wall, looking at this night, inhumanly patient, waiting for some secret silent alarm to trigger him off. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We have arrived at episode 32, which is the second entry in our Coleween series, and we're back to Cole's Choice. So what did you select? I have selected the heavyweight champion of all slasher films, Halloween from 1978. Directed and scored by John Carpenter, and co-written with his production partner Deborah Hill, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Donald Pleasance, Charles Cyphers, Nancy Loomis, PJ Souls, and Nick Castle, who was credited as The Shape. I'm going to save the coloration on Nancy Loomis's name for <laughs> for a question later. Okay. <laughs> or should I just ask right now? No, we, we can get into save, it in a okay. little bit. A brief synopsis for the tens of people that haven't seen it by now. It is the story of an escaped lunatic who is celebrating Halloween by dispatching a number of babysitters in suburban middle America. As you mentioned, John Carpenter also scored the film. And that's the first thing that strikes me every time I watch it, that iconic music. And we have another bit of iconography, which is the jack-o'-lantern. It's a very prosaic introduction. And somehow the pumpkin looks so crisp and alive. It's like it's in our house. It's like I'm inside the movie. It's a striking image to start with, and it makes me wonder why, prior to this film, was Halloween not a more cinematically exploited image than it was? This was the first film of any significance to celebrate the holiday or to make it the focus? Weren't the producers really surprised to discover that Halloween had not been used in an actual title? Yes, they were. Probably as much as I am, still today. Halloween as a cultural phenomenon was clearly up and running by then. I trick-or-treated my entire childhood, and I was born in 1970, and the first instances of it being recorded in the United States go back as far as nearly the turn of the century, 1915 to 1920. There are a few mentions of it, and then it really took off in the 30s, So by the time we get to the production of this film, spooks and Halloween and things that go bump in the night were a clearly established cultural currency. And I've also seen the photo of you wearing an incredibly creepy clown mask (laughs) from your very early youth. So if the producers had just seen that photo, that would have frightened them enough to get something going. That was actually not Halloween. That was regular day-to-day wear. That was your year-round celebration <laughs> of Halloween or Coloween. Coloween since 1970. 46 years going strong this year. 
Now, in addition to this being one of my all-time favorites, this is also an apt choice for this year's go-round of horror films because there's a direct line drawn between your selection, Black Christmas, and my choice of this film. And specifically, John Carpenter had contacted Bob Clark, the director of Black Christmas, and they had talked about doing a film together, possibly a sequel to Black Christmas. Bob Clark lost some interest in that, but John Carpenter was so excited by the idea, he took it and made it his own, and that became Halloween. They share a lot of similarities. Specifically, one of those similarities is the use of the killer POV, which opens the action. Right. In Halloween, it is not the first time we've seen it. This subjective camera is used specifically in horror films quite a bit. Examples as prominent as Peeping Tom, Psycho, but this is a distillation of all of those techniques in a way that was more effective probably than ever before. At least more iconic. Used as a more central device. And it's similarly tricky to the way Alfred Hitchcock set you up in Psycho in that it aligns you with the killer before you even know what is happening. Because if you strip away the 10 million times you've seen it by now and try to remember what it was like the very first time, you do not realize what is about to happen. You see the outside of a middle-class suburban home. You're not sure who is looking at it. It definitely generates unease, and your instinct is probably that you are seeing through the eyes of someone with ill intent. Because typically, voyeurism isn't a benevolent thing. No, typically not. But as you follow it into the house, and you see that little tiny hand reach into the drawer and pull out that butcher knife, you realize this is a child? So immediately you are struck with all of these incongruous elements that put you off balance a little bit. The voyeurism that you mentioned that you ascribe most probably to an adult, just as a matter of instinct. Then you see the child's hands come into view and you obviously know you are not dealing with an adult. But this child clearly has homicidal impulses. Or at least it seems so, because why else do you pull a butcher knife out of the drawer? And you watch the entire thing unfold as he commits murder, killing what we find out is his sister, punishing her in classic wages-of-sin form for having had sex rather than tending to him. Carpenter works really quickly in this opening sequence to set all of these things up for us. Time and place, Haddonfield, Halloween, 1963, and he has distilled all of these elements from these films that came before into what we now know is the codified set of rules that slasher films operate by. Those things being primarily the subjective point of view, which aligns the audience with the killer, putting you by default in the headspace of the homicidal lunatic, and the punishment of the immoral behavior. We also have, very importantly, the mask. We see at one point the killer bend down to put a mask on. Why do you think he does that? I can tell you why I would do it. Yeah? We've had this discussion before, I think, about how liberating the mask is. The great majority of my Halloween costumes... Are terrifying. But are also full over-the-head masks. They cover my entire face and head, and you see nothing of my features except my eyes showing through. It serves a distinct purpose from the viewer's end, but I can tell you from being inside that mask that once you are 
inside the mask, anything goes. It's a very basic psychological function that it serves. It makes you into an other. It is no longer you that is committing these acts. It is an entirely separate being. I think it becomes even more horrifying when we discover that the killer is a child, so this other is a child. Was he cognizant of that acceptance of a mask when he did it? Was he thinking through all of those things? And what does that say about what is lurking inside of him? At six years old, I don't think he was thinking through it, but I think the instinct is there. I think that as an impulse is much more potent than that as a fully formed motivation, as something you have thought through and decided. Surrendering to that instinct, just having the instinct in the first place is far more frightening than going through your flowchart of evil and deciding, okay, this is advantageous for me to behave this way. He also chooses for his wrath, one of the people closest to him, his sister. We first see her making out on the couch with her boyfriend and then going upstairs clearly to have sex. When Michael kills her, she is almost fully naked. I think her body is something that is quite striking within the context of this film. In what way? We're used to seeing in other slashers the buxom, horny teen offered up to slaughter. She has very large breasts, which are very clear. Even seen through the eyes of his little clown mask. And to me, her screams sound more like moans. I don't know if it struck you that way. It did. There is a very definite and not at all coincidental link between sex and violence in the film. Put at its most basic terms, she is being penetrated by this phallic knife. You notice the only gun in the entire film is Loomis's gun. Every other murder is much more personal and easily interpreted as having at least some facet of sexuality. And they've chosen the most unsubtle non-virgin to be the first body. Absolutely. Like I said, Carpenter has distilled all of these things here in 1978, just four short years after your choice of Black Christmas, for instance, streamlining it, codifying it, to make a weird comparison, I think of Black Christmas as, say, a moray eel. It's ugly and awkward and slithering and lives in the crevices and cracks of a thing. Native to Canada. <laughs> no, not really. Sorry, Canada. <laughs> Whereas by the time Carpenter has put his stamp on it, it is now clearly a shark. It is built for speed and efficiency. It is sleek and it is streamlined. Its primary function is text, and it is seldom slowed down by something as pesky as subtext. It is all about, let's kill some horny teens. Now that is not to say there is not plenty of interpretation that can go on with it, but it's certainly not because of what Carpenter built into it intentionally. Carpenter, though, offers his own interpretation of this. He says that he didn't set out to make death the punishment for the teens who are having sex, that they are simply too distracted by sex to notice what is going on around them. But I would dispute that by the choice of the bodies that he uses to be killed. Is that a legitimate position, though, that he holds? You were a teen <laughs> once. I was. I'm uh, I'm yanking my collar a little bit. <laughs> I I was once in an office park 
that wasn't used at night making out in a back seat only to be surprised by a knock at the window and it was a cop and i did not see that coming <laughs> tell me more <laughs> so um maybe there's something in that a little a yes and no okay a viable position so we see the sister murdered by an assailant that is still unknown to us. She says the name here, Michael, but that means nothing to us at this point. Then, via the killer's point of view, we see them go down the stairs, out the front door, onto the front lawn as a car pulls up, and it is revealed that the killer is a child, and these are his parents who are just arriving home to find the terrible thing that he's done. They take off his mask, and we see the young child, and we see that the knife that he's carrying is practically half of his body. He looks, if anything, dazed. Clearly this was supposed to be a huge shock to the audience, that this was a child that committed this crime. Does it affect you that way now? Yes. Still definitely. Does. In part because when his parents take his mask off, he has almost no expression. There's definitely no remorse on his face. And that's very horrifying. I don't recall it affecting me that way. Being a huge surprise. And definitely not a shock. I was not taken aback the way I think I was supposed to be. The way the filmmakers intended me to be. Is that because you were walking around all year long with a clown mask on? <laughs> plotting who knows what? I think I've always had, even at a very young age... A very clear picture of what human beings are capable of. And I'm not as uncomfortable with that idea as a lot of people are facing whatever darkness might be inside them. We'll get more into this later when we talk about the economy of time within the film and what would be possible. Why it's plausible that events would unfold this way. Now we jump ahead 15 years and it is the night before Halloween. We see the late, great Donald Pleasance in a car driving with a nurse in a torrential rainstorm. And they're going to transport Michael, the youth that we saw 15 years earlier murder his sister. He's being transported to meet a legal obligation. And the doctor and the nurse are talking about what the doctor is going to say at this hearing. He's going to insist that Michael never get out. Never, 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 never. He also refers to Michael as it, while the nurse, that smug jerk, keeps smoking. You have something personal against this nurse? Because she didn't strike me that way as much as she just struck me as a rookie. In fact, she protests what she perceives as his lack of compassion when he is referring to Michael as an other, as a, a neutral, a non-human. I use the term smug jerk. That's how she has always struck me from my very first viewing of the film to all of these years later. She thinks she knows everything. Mm, okay. She thinks she can tell him his job. And I always dislike people who refuse to face facts. Now, her smug jerkness builds okay. to a crescendo. And I always remember it as she is the second to die, but she's not. No, she does not die. That's probably some schadenfreude on my part. <laughs> I want to see smug jerks get their comeuppance, but she doesn't particularly. But now she does know the truth. But essentially, I don't like it when people can't understand the facts as presented to them and make reasonable 
determinations based on it. Not everyone is inherently good. Mm -hmm. Just because someone is young doesn't make them innocent. No, but this situation is so far outside the bounds of anything approaching normal, would it not be reasonable for her to look at Loomis as an Ahab and he is crazy and paranoid? Certainly a lot of people see him this way, and that could just be my viewing of it outside, knowing what's going to come later. But I will say the flip side of that is I can come into something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and ask, why is Franklin so terrible? (laughs) Jesus, that's obvious. So I guess I'm going to create the website for Smug Jerk Nurse. Okay. And then everybody else will think that there's something wrong with me. So they arrive at Smith's Grove Sanitarium to discover the loonies are loose. Donald Pleasance goes to the guardhouse to try to determine what is happening, and in the meantime, one of these loonies clambers onto the car, assaults and terrifies the nurse, manages to remove her from the car, he jumps into the car, and takes off with a station wagon like he's A.J. Foyt. Who is A.J. Foyt? Did you not watch Wide World of Sports when you were little? I don't, maybe, I guess not. He was a race car driver. Okay, so deep cut reference then, I guess. Right. She is definitely feeling the agony of defeat. Shirley Muldowney. Good one. Same era. Because I saw the movie, Heart Like a Wheel. With Bonnie Bedelia. Yeah, your favorite. (laughs) I love Bonnie Bedelia. Anyway. She's not in this film. No, unfortunately. He's off with the car. Loomis proclaims, the evil is gone from here. And your smug nurse got her comeuppance as she lays in the gutter, soaked with rain, and realizing now that she should have listened to Dr. Loomis. He drives off into the night. Sun rises on the next day. We find ourselves back in Haddonfield. It is now the morning of Halloween. Here we are introduced to Jamie Lee Curtis for the first time as Lori, who is on her way to school and running an errand for her real estate agent father, dropping off the key to the Myers house. She meets her young charge, Tommy, who she will be babysitting that Halloween night, and they walk together to school for a little while. They go to the Myers house together, and he is clearly upset by it, because that is the spooky house in town. Obviously, it has a history, and his generation may not know specifically what that history is, but everyone in town knows that this is the spook house. Did you have a similar house when you were growing up? We did as well. It was a very small town. And there was no specific history to it. It just looked creepy. And no one lived in it for a long time. Ours was a really large house that was set up on a little bit of a hill. It was frequently unoccupied. I'm assuming at this point because it was probably more expensive than people in the area could afford. And so it lent itself to peeking in windows to see if you could see ghosts creeping by. And it took on a story of, I think, a family was murdered there at some point, which, of course, they were not. And you broke in until Andy and Barney had to sneak in and teach you a lesson about trespassing on people's property. I was trying to make some moonshine. (laughs) At the Myers house, he, the evil, is there. We hear him breathing, and we clearly see a silhouette. A silhouette that sees both Lori and Tommy significantly. So Michael has clearly made it home. Which is something that Loomis is trying to tell everyone. Because here, we cut back to him talking to the administrator of Smith's Grove, explaining to him that proper precautions were not taken, and 
we should all be going to Haddonfield because that is where he's headed. And this ties back to something that you were saying about the nurse, because equally in this situation, it's clear that no one believes him. No one has listened to his dire warnings all this time, and proper precautions have never been taken. Which, again, to me, is crazy. You have a child murderer with whom, if you had spent any time, you would see there's nothing going on inside of him that's any good, and no one wants to believe. What more evidence do you need? So I guess what I'm saying is, if you came to me tomorrow and said, one of our kid neighbors is up to no good, I would believe you in a second. (laughs) I also love in this scene that they very clearly acknowledge something that I think the vast majority of the audience had been asking themselves at this point. How did Michael drive? If he's been in the institution since he was a small child, they at least nod to the idea that it's an absurd circumstance? Honestly, it had never occurred to me. I feel kind of silly not making that connection before, but I just thought, well... I used to watch my parents with that great big old park and drive and the big turn knob. What do you call it? And the the display would be across the front. What are you talking about? The big old car my grandmother drove and it would make that cocoon noise whenever you put it into a different gear. You know, the big turn knob thing. That how hard is it? You just stick your foot and, you know, go, right? That's driving. I would like to point out to everyone that it looks like, based on the gesture that you're making, trying to describe this thing to me, that he is either sailing a spinnaker or whitewashing a fence. The gestures you are making have nothing to do with driving an automobile. You know, those great big old boat cars and the steering column or something. I don't know. I can drive a stick. That's hard. Okay. Driving an automatic is not hard. Especially if they gave driver's ed classes at the sanitarium? I guess I did think that maybe they did that. Occupational therapy? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yes, let's teach a class that shows them how to boost cars. Because that's clearly going to come in handy. For those of us in the audience that it didn't occur to, I guess they didn't even need to include that in a script. They could have just left it out and we would have gone with it. Okay. Just like, well, we believe all kids are kill-crazy murderers, probably. That's much closer to the truth. But significantly, no one is listening to Loomis. They still aren't. They still do not believe that something so crazy could be taking place. Now, speaking of youth, we are in school with Lori. And she is in what I'm assuming is an English class. And the discussion is about fate. This is where I was really struck by how distinct jamie lee is as a physical presence her face has that heaviness heaviness of jaw she has very striking lines it's an odd young face and during this discussion of fate she sees the car which we know is the government car that michael has stolen across the street just sitting there she is being watched and it ties into the lesson plan coincidentally because fate being personified as immovable and a natural element figures mightily into the myth of Michael Myers. As the teacher tells us, fate never changes. It stands where man passes away. An idea that dovetails nicely with how I like my killers. You know I prefer them hulking and silent 
to do a show where we talk all the time, I'm really not big on talking. I would much rather observe and listen, and it is much more frightening when a thing is just implacable and relentless and doesn't have to run its mouth all the damn time. I, on the other hand, prefer my killers like uh, Joanne Worley. (laughs) (laughs) But this notion of fate as immovable and constant falls parallel to the idea of Michael as the embodiment of evil, an eternal notion. Once or twice in the film, the devil is referred to, having the devil's eyes, that sort of thing. I think that is the wrong way to go about it. That doesn't apply as much to me as this monolithic idea of a constant evil. The devil to me is a much more charming and sophisticated and multifaceted idea as a representative of evil, as one manifestation of evil. But the idea of evil itself as being an immutable thing that you can make no appeal to, that is humorless and featureless and has nothing human in its face, it's very effective the way he's presented. And this mask, for example, that we soon see, we haven't seen yet, was a brilliant choice. A complete stroke of luck, an accident, cost $1.98. It was the best $1.98 horror filmmakers ever spent. Within this discussion of fate, does that mean that these teens, through their actions, have invited this fate, or it was always going to be their fate? Well, based on what you tell me about your experience and the inescapable horniness of youth, they were clearly on a collision course. Within the rigid moral framework of these films, I think it is definitely an issue of punishment that is avoidable, because you see characters that don't indulge in that, that survive. So I think it is within their power to make certain decisions in this universe that can avoid this outcome. Rather than the wheels began turning inexorably before they even came along, and they were simply fodder for this without their own choosing. I think their decision-making process figures inextricably with this. We move into the next scene, which finds Tommy carrying a giant pumpkin at his elementary school. And there are some kids that are taunting him, saying, the boogeyman is coming. We also see our shape watching and following. Now, to continue on with this discussion of fate, did he, the shape, select these people? I think that part is coincidental. He specifically has keyed on Tommy because Tommy and Lori made the mistake, unknowingly, of infringing on his space. They came to his ancestral home and put themselves on his radar. And they are now locked in this track Mm -hmm. with him. Now, it should be said that there is extra footage that was shot for a TV version of this that came later. I haven't seen this version. They tried to retcon some of this Lori was his sister stuff that's not in the original, back into the televised version by adding about 12 minutes of footage that explains their relationship in more detail. Because that doesn't come until Halloween 2, correct? Okay. And I didn't know any of that the first time that I saw Halloween. I didn't know about the other story building that had taken place. It's completely unnecessary. It detracts from the first one. You can see that version of it 
on home video. It's been released in various forms. But there's nothing about any of those additions that makes the original better in any way. The kids don't know how prophetic they are when they are telling him the Boogeyman is coming because, in fact, the Boogeyman is here. As an aside here, Boogeyman is a word I've always had problems with. Okay. It sounds terrible in my ear. It puts me on edge. It's one of those words that has the feel of something unpleasant to me. So I never say it. And it's said multiple times in this film, and each time I think I cringe a little bit. Probably going to be said at least a few more times in this podcast because we need to discuss what an ancient idea the Boogeyman actually is. Thank goodness in our playlet I wasn't called upon to say Boogeyman because it... I didn't even think of that when you just said it. Yeah, and did you hear me say ugh right afterwards? I I just don't like it. At any rate, it's a very old idea. So old, you practically can't trace the origins of it. And it very definitely suits Michael Myers as a horror icon. It's typically a masculine presence. He has no specific appearance, so the blankness of that mask fits with the mythology very well. Or the concept of the shape. And his primary function is to frighten children into proper behavior. So, again, goes quite nicely with the enforcement of this rigid moral code and these illicit teen behaviors have to be punished. It does, however, run counter to the idea that since developed from the franchise of Michael Myers being one of the most recognizable and distinct villains in horror film history. Is there a more recognizable boogeyman in contemporary culture that you can think of? I don't think so, because everything else I could think of, and especially during Halloween season, has a form and a face and a name and a story. But so does he. I think, though, he brings up more questions than he does answers. So much of his motivation is ambiguous or up to interpretation. In 1978, it is. Now... No. Now there's such a convoluted and ridiculous mythology with a Halloween franchise that that doesn't apply the same way anymore. I think I'm specifically talking about Michael Myers in this film. Okay. Rather than what would come after or be changed later. And I could put on the overall and the mask. Anyone could don these outward trappings. As I often do. Oh, God. (laughs) That was a creepy look you just gave me. (laughs) And become very, very frightening. It's as if form is just trapped in an outward shell, but there's no real matter. There are other prominent examples. Famously, Jason, Freddy. Richard Nixon. (laughs) I was trying to think of scary masks. All I could think of immediately is the Billy Joel song. We didn't start the fire. Other names just started coming out at at me anyway. Are you about to launch into one of your patented Erica Long song parodies? I am not. You are the Weird Al Yankovic of film podcasts. I think that's giving me way too much credit. (laughs) But with those other famous killers, to me they're not as interesting because, as I said a moment ago, I like having questions that I don't know the answers to. He's inexplicable. The comparison that you had mentioned, what we are watching right now, the 1978 version, and then what comes after later, to me is really well represented in this next scene when Dr. Loomis is on Michael's trail. 
The filming of this scene is my very favorite. When we take the work that is done by the shape in its entirety, I love the way all of that action is filmed. But this specifically is all about visual suggestion. And I feel like we traded suggestion and artistry for blood and trash and gore and overly simplistic explanations. That leads me directly into another question I had for you, actually. I'm glad you brought that up. I was thinking about the things that you in particular find attractive or unattractive about the genre, and I was thinking about the vast gulf between this when it came out in 1978 and the horror film landscape in 2007 when Rob Zombie's remake of this came out. And beyond, up to the present, and this simplistic thing that you talk about, where in the new version, he goes back and recreates a home life and feels like he has to explain every little thing that led up to Michael becoming this thing, absolutely unnecessary, and everything about it being amateurish and even more textual and no subtextual than Carpenter's version is, which is going some. How do you see the evolution of the horror film from the late 70s until the early 2000s? What are the major differences that you see? We talk, or we have talked a lot on this podcast and separately, about characters who are unlikable and what that might mean within the context of the film. I don't have any problem watching a film with unlikable characters if that is the point and fits within the context of the story. I do have a problem when someone has created a film and I'm supposed to identify with garbage people, as I term them, and all I want to do is see them gone. Not because I want to cheer on the killer or have some sort of sense of bloodlust that must be satisfied, because they are so repellent and abhorrent as people to me. And that smacks of lazy storytelling rather than some sort of artistic or social commentary. The lazy thing hits upon where I think it derives from. In this world we live in now, post-advent of reality television, I think rather than characters that we are supposed to relate to, I don't think we're supposed to relate to them like you mentioned. I think these are characters, much like with reality television, that we are supposed to easily feel superior to, is how it strikes me. I think that that might be giving too much credit to some <laughs> folks. I see it as often as that, possibly, as doesn't everybody act like this? Doesn't everybody talk like this? Doesn't everybody behave this way in trauma? No, they don't. And I would much rather root for a person because they've earned it rather than simply because they were put in front of me. I'm also trying to think about what the purpose could possibly be for answering every question we might ever have or didn't even know we had. Is that because we're supposed to be stupid? Or is that because we're supposed to have our fears assuaged somehow that this could not happen to us because of this very specific backstory that's built in? I would agree with you that it's lazy and also that it's dumb. I think it is geared specifically to hit those marks. I don't know if we agree on how come it's built that way, but it is definitely aiming for the lowest common denominator. 
Which is a shame because an example like Rob Zombie, he strikes me as someone that I would certainly like to have a conversation about film with because we clearly have similar tastes. We clearly have touchstone films that we share in our backgrounds just based on his catalog. You can tell Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But by the end of that conversation, I may realize that these things we like, we don't like for the same reason. I used to watch him on TCM Underground, and I think that he was great in that, and I think he has lots of ideas. I would always prefer to watch a film made by someone who has lots of ideas rather than none. And even in something that I detested from start to finish, Lords of Salem, Mm -hmm. there are still ideas and interesting things and some artistry in it, and I feel like he at some point vastly loses his way. And I do not mean to suggest that everything should be pretty. Mm -hmm. Everyone should be likable. Everyone should be great. There should be clear heroes. No, that's garbage. I think we're probably saying at least a similar, if not the same thing. You can have this ugliness. We don't want to necessarily sacrifice what's grim and real about something as long as it's somehow sophisticated in either conception or presentation. Which leads me to another aspect of this discussion, which is violence. Whether that be physical violence, outward manifestation of violence in blood and gore, and how that has changed. And it seems to me a lot these days, the evolution of violence, which I think was most often grounded in misogyny, has only escalated from that point. Now, is that an issue of what's acceptable to put on screen? Or has that always been there? And much like it was in the days of the production code, they just had to be more clever about how they put it across. The reason I ask is because it just occurred to me as I was thinking about Rob Zombie as relative to John Carpenter, I was also thinking John Carpenter as relative to, say, someone like Val Luton. And we talk about Rob Zombie's version of this story being extremely unsophisticated and unappealing. But we've already talked about in the very beginning of this episode how Halloween, being such a distillation of those ideas, that text over subtext thing that he does, that could also be read as considerably less sophisticated than what came 30 years before it. Agreed. And why I mentioned specifically Judith, the first body, I think was chosen for a reason. And that's not particularly sophisticated. But eternal. But eternal. I do think there is escalation. I think it is accepted and viewed that we can not just hurt anyone, we can hurt women especially, and we will rewatch that again and again. We've seen real examples of that, domestic violence. People have watched videos of those things, and rather than condemnation happening afterwards, there will be explanation or justification. You mean... In a news cycle, that sort of thing? Yes. And how we continue to move further away, maybe not at this moment, this moment is a bit of a change, but move further away from the concept of equal rights, it becomes more and more acceptable that people will not stand up and say, you obviously hate women. Can we talk about this? And I don't mean specifically Rob Zombie or anyone specifically, but as an idea that is not discussed. Well, this film is pivotal to that discussion as well because of all the ideas that became gospel for the filmmakers that followed this, there is no bigger contribution to genre film 
than the final girl concept, which this film is ground zero for. And on its face, seems like it is a triumph of feminism. But the more I think about it, I wonder, does it start from this idea that we're all supposed to agree with, which is that women are inherently weaker? Therefore, to have the woman be the triumphant ending hero, it's because she had to overcome her nature and overcome someone stronger than her. If we saw a final boy, would we all at some level not be insisting that, of course he's going to triumph, he's a boy, he should be able to overcome this killer no matter how strong the killer is because he is a boy, he's a man. So it would be odd to us to watch two men fighting. I don't think modern cinema audiences would accept a final boy as a substitute. I do think there are very definite fluid gender characteristics that allow a male audience to side with a female character. You mentioned her distinctive face, and I would also add her voice in this case. A number of these final girl characters are either tomboyish or have that husky voice, or in some way connote an adolescent male. As opposed to PJ Souls, for example. Mm -hmm. And Lori, I think tellingly, when she first starts in the film, she has a skirt on for school. When she goes to babysit, she is wearing pants. So she's also taken off some of those female trappings. I know I'm going to have our eternal post-show regrets where I'm going to think of 50 things that I should have said more clearly than I have. So I know there's a lot more to say about this, but... We'll actually talk about it in more detail as we go, because we haven't even gotten to the point where she is final. We haven't even met the other girls. Good point. You mentioned PJ Souls. Here is where we meet Lori's group of friends. Linda, as portrayed by PJ Souls, and Annie, as portrayed by Nancy Loomis. Now, is this where I get to ask what is so bad about Nancy Loomis? Oh, she's the worst. Why is she the worst? She's not my favorite, but is she Franklin-level terrible? I think so. Okay. I think so. And here is why I think that. She is a terrible friend, for one thing, which already is a huge black mark against you in my book. But most significantly, she is one of those people, this character, and I suspect her personally because you couldn't pull this off that well without being a little bit this person, that cannot convey a sincere emotion without cloaking it in sarcasm and irony. She cannot once say something nice without having to somehow wrap it in this cloak of sarcastic bullshit. My mom says sarcasm is the ignorant man's weapon. (laughs) Well, your mom is right. That is precisely why I do not like her. She has never encountered an emotion and attempted to express it in any sincere, genuine way directly to another human being, it feels like. Okay. And she portrayed this sort of character in other John Carpenter films. Oh, that's a stretch. She doesn't get it in the fog, though. That's a shame. Back to the group of friends. What struck me in this scene as they're talking about the machinations of babysitting for the purposes of heavy petting, screwing around, smoking, drinking, that they are at this point walking towards their fate. They've already encountered Michael 
once as he was driving by, and Annie yells something at him needlessly. And I think when I watched that, what would it have taken at that point for him to just back up and say, okay, we're just going to do this now. Is this why you get so mad at me when I try to confront people and I escalate situations that I could get us murdered or get myself murdered? I think that's more it. Or I'm just being a a naggy crank. That may be even more (laughs) it. Actually, bingo. (laughs) I don't want to be married to Annie. Oh, God, are you? (laughs) No. Okay. I wouldn't say so. She shouts something at him. He stops and then drives on, and she says that she hates a guy with a car and no sense of humor, which is rich because she's not exactly the greatest wit. That did, though, scare the crap out of me when he slams on those brakes and mm-hmm. just waits and you don't know what's going to happen. There's a lot of cat and mouse through this whole section that's really genuinely terrifying to me. The most significant instance of that being when he appears from behind the shrub on the sidewalk and Lori spots him while Annie is running her mouth and doesn't notice. Annie goes to confront him and he has disappeared. Every element of this movement work with the shape and the cat and mouse thing that I mentioned, I love. It's very effective. We now actually have a similar hedge in the border of our front yard, (laughs) which I think about every time I come jogging down the corner and see it and wonder, is somebody going to step out? This scene where Annie goes to confront him is a perfect example of what I'm talking about, about why her character is so reprehensible. She ostensibly does something... Brave, possibly. Mm -hmm. But in doing so, she cannot help but needle Lori about it, rather than saying something like a true friend might say, oh, it's okay, there's no one here. She has to be an ass. There's no vulnerability and no warmth in practically anything she does. She's as much an inhuman monster as Michael is. That is a bold statement. Oh, it'll get bolder. Really? I've got okay, other I can't things, wait. I've got other things to say about her. All right. Because she continues jerking around for, for a while, at least. Okay, so an air of menace has been established. We know that Michael is now stalking Lori in particular and this group of girls in general. We see trick-or-treaters that are starting early. Michael appears at the clothesline in Lori's backyard. In the meantime, Dr. Loomis discovers that Judith Meyer's headstone is missing. Annie has come to pick Lori up to head out for their evening of babysitting and other sundry activities. And it's clear that Lori is a good girl, but not quite that good. She's not quite as pure as the final girl archetype might dictate. She's not uptight. She is interested in some exploration. She hasn't had a lot of opportunities yet. Would you say that she is more frustrated than repressed? More of a late bloomer, I would say. And often in a world where young people are over-sexualized, especially in teen films, everyone seems to have this wealth of experience and knowledge. She seems grounded in what her age is in the film. Clumsy, halting, like you said, curious, interested, but not extremely experienced. Annie and Lori are in the car and they drive past the local hardware store. Annie sees her father, Sheriff Brackett, and they stop to see what's up. Just prior to that, in their rear view, Michael has been creeping behind them and that shark-colored and shaped station wagon. And when they pull up to the hardware store, 
they find out that someone has broken in and only coincidentally stolen the items you would need to go on a kill crazy rampage. Some rope, some knives, a mask. This is where Loomis meets the sheriff for the first time. And Michael just coincidentally cruises the scene in the background, photobombing Dr. Loomis as he's waiting to have this conversation with Sheriff Brackett. I know he didn't get a lot of driver's education, but someone certainly taught him how to tailgate because he is four feet off of the girl's bumper the entire time they are driving through these neighborhoods. He learned that from me. (laughs) Because he is following them so closely, he's able to scout out the layout of the babysitting situation, which the proximity of it makes very convenient for butchery. The two houses where Annie and Lori will be are basically across the street from each other. Now, my question here is, where are all of these parents going to on Halloween night? Are they all going to the same party? Why is everybody gone? VFW Hall. Key party, maybe? I I don't know. (laughs) The sheriff and Loomis investigate the Myers house to discover that someone, obviously Michael, has been there, and they find the remains of a dog that Michael has obviously eaten for sustenance. I am wondering, though, if it's as easy as it is to break into the hardware store, why not just break into the grocery store as well? If you can steal knives and rope and a mask, why can't you steal a loaf of Wonder Bread and bologna, which is what you would have stolen in 1978, rather than eat this dog? I think it's a lifestyle choice. He didn't get enough dog in the psychiatric hospital, I guess. He probably got plenty of Wonder Bread and bologna. True. Do you recall at that point if we associated serial killer behavior with harming animals as well, or is that more of a recent idea? Linking those two things. That came later. The notion of profiling and the things we knew about, the common traits that you could retroactively point to in the development of a serial killer, were not widely known in 1978. And speaking of, Dr. Loomis has been the one this entire time trying to sound this alarm that Michael Myers is dangerous. And I think a lot of credit goes to the sheriff for taking it seriously in this context. In a lot of these movies, Law enforcement are the ones who are the outliers and often obstructionists, but in this, he is very much in league to help Dr. Loomis. Though I question the strategy, specifically not telling the other officers. (laughs) He doesn't throw a dragnet around the town. It's a little bit more of a wait and see, but at least he's not acting as though Dr. Loomis is a paranoid crazy. To step back and put this in a bit of context, All of this setup that we've been talking about has taken up about a third of the film, which is not insignificant, I think, especially when viewed versus contemporary films. It feels like Carpenter has really taken his time to create this world for us and also to establish stakes that we talk about all the time. So we're into Act 2, which finds all of the babysitters now firmly ensconced in the households where they are taking care of the children. Annie's on the phone, being a jerk again, and tellingly, the family dog of the people who she is working for is growling at her because dogs know people. She spills something on herself which necessitates a change of clothing and a trip to the laundry room. Do you know how repellent I have to find you for oversized shirt and knee socks to not work on me? Are you pointing at me or you're talking about Annie in this? I'm asking you if you know how horrible a person you have to be 
for that not to move the needle for me at least a little. Plus, you just saw a cool dog, too. So, yeah, she's really screwing it up. Here's a short list of people that I would be more into seeing in an oversized shirt and knee socks. Elizabeth Bathory, Lizzie Borden, Ernest Borgnine, Joanne Worley, Adolf Hitler. In that order? Exactly that order. <laughs> okay. Okay, we get it. You don't like Annie. You think she's a jerk and gross. Annie has to go do her laundry in this other separate building that has the laundry facilities in it. And there's a little bit of a back and forth where she gets stuck in the room. More of this cat and mouse that you mentioned as well. And it's interesting to me in that it gets her away from the house and away from Lindsay, whom she is babysitting, who can't hear her. So she's sort of on her own, but that's not where the major action turns. For me, it felt like, oh, the big setup, this is where it's going to happen, and it's not. So it's escalating that tension and then bringing it down and then making the kill that happens that much more surprising. That kill takes place in the garage, in the car, as she is on her way to meet her boyfriend, Paul. She is strangled by Michael in the car, and this is the first instance that we get a look at the mask. It's also a very protracted strangling. It takes a long time, the accurate amount of time that it would take for that sort of thing to happen. And her gasping and the strangulation itself sounds very real to me. And the best part of this is that first she sees the moisture condensation inside the car and that clues her to something is going on. Again, we have these signifiers of sex fogged car windows, and Annie's moans, which have already twice now been confused with an obscene phone call, these sounds that she makes, being possibly construed as sexual sounds as well. Her death throes. And she has been partially dressed, and she's on her way to meet her boyfriend to eventually have sex as well. The other element of this, going back to why it's even more terrifying, is that Even though she's in the garage and her lifeless body lands on the horn for a continuous horn sound, no one else can hear it. Everybody's at the American Legion chili cook-off. So cue the boogeyman making his first appearance to young Tommy, who is observing through the window. He happens to be hiding to scare Lindsay and is a bad choice, a hiding place, because as he looks out the window, he sees Michael carrying Annie's lifeless body back into the house, and it is terrifying to him. He frantically screams for Lori to come see so he can show her that the boogeyman is real, but of course by the time she gets there, he's gone. And Lori doesn't believe him, which to me seems odd because she's now seen this person twice, very terrifying, but is quick to believe that Tommy hasn't seen anything. Has she forgotten what's happened over the course of this day? She is operating as the adult in this scene. And this is a frequent device in horror films where the adults don't believe the overactive imagination, quote-unquote, of the children. So Laurie is occupying that space as a substitute for the adults, seemingly forgetting what it's like to be a young person in peril. I recently was reading a story that someone was telling about how when they were young, they made their mother sign a contract saying 
that if I ever come to you with the story, you will believe me. I would advise all children to go out, have one of these documents drafted, notarized, and signed by your parents. That way, you can potentially avoid all of these hassles in the future were you to encounter the boogeyman. Sounds like a sound proposition. Sadly, in this film, all of the notaries are also at the VFW Hall, so everybody's on their own. Lori calms the kids down, and they settle in to watch the remainder of the scary movie they were watching. And it struck me as such an archaic scene. Now, for any young person coming to this film today, they are watching television with no cable, no DVR. The landline phone is ringing. There are no contemporary touchstones that I think a modern audience can find their footing with in this scene. There are no cell phones so that you are constantly able to be in contact with other people. I don't know if it was the same for you, but having a landline, also as in Black Christmas, there was this idea that you had to answer it? Not really. Not for you. Okay. Not a surprise. Right. Well, I get that from my dad. We had a trick that if you were calling home, you let it ring twice, you hang up, you call back. That way, you know you didn't have to talk to any other bozos that didn't know the code. Was there a separate code for I'm being chased by the boogeyman? Was that three hang-ups? Nope. You better make sure you have enough of a cushion that you have time to call once, let it ring twice, and hang up before the boogeyman gets you. I don't know why you're acting all high and mighty about this. How many times do you answer the door during the day when anyone that you're not expecting rings that bell? Never. That's right. Never, ever, ever. Most of the time I don't answer my phone because now I can see who it is. But with these folks, that was all you had to stay in contact or ask for help. Subsequently, Linda and Bob show up at the house where Annie is supposed to be sitting because they have made arrangements that they can use one of the bedrooms. They are going to have sex in a stranger's house. You say that like it's a bad thing. Ha! What? Okay, Miss Office Park. Oh, I guess (laughs) there was... Okay, we don't need to go into this story on this podcast. Never mind. Moving on. We'll also see later they have a lighted pumpkin on a bedside table, which seems like a massive fire hazard to me. Seasonal. It adds a little (laughs) pumpkin spice. (laughs) I was just going to try to make a pumpkin spice joke. That one was really good, though. (laughs) Okay, so they do their thing. Bob gets up to go to the kitchen Says, I'll be right back, presumably for more lame sex, because it definitely was. Yeah, uh, giggling is the worst, even though maybe now that I say that I do a lot of it on this show, but PJ Souls' giggling is terrible in this. Bob meets the same fate as everyone that says, I'll be right back, in any horror film in the 70s and 80s, and finds himself pinned to the wall with that handy butcher knife. Michael has lifted him as if he weighs nothing. This is the first instance of a superhuman aspect to Michael's behavior. This incredible strength, along with the driver's ed courses, I guess he was taking Jack LaLanne's fitness classes. Charles Atlas, maybe? No one's kicking sand in his face. (laughs) No. Now, I said earlier that with the blank expression on the mask that he was humorless. I take that back, because... Here, where he puts on the sheet and Bob's glasses, is hilarious. It is. It's the best part. He is a cut-up. 
and then some. He dispatches Linda by strangling her with the telephone cord, so everybody is done but Lori. Back to Lori. She's got both of the kids upstairs. She goes to check on them. She goes back downstairs because she hasn't heard from Andy at this point. She doesn't know what's going on at the other house across the street. She has the keys, so she goes over to investigate. Also investigating is Loomis in one of my favorite (laughs) sections where... Apparently, as he has been staking out the Myers house all night long, he decides to literally turn around and see, hey, I recognize that station wagon, which has been parked behind him all night long. Is that any testament to the kind of visual tricks that Carpenter has played a few times where the camera shifts an inch and, oh, suddenly there's the sheriff? Or he goes back to the left and then there's something else that we haven't seen. So he he only shows us specific sections as if we have no peripheral vision. Well, Loomis needs to get his peripheral vision checked because if you are on the lookout for a homicidal maniac that has escaped from a mental institution and he is driving the car of said institution... The fact that it is parked 20 feet behind you and all you have to do is turn around, not quite exactly Sherlock Holmes. It's also a gigantic station wagon as they were back then too, so it's kind of hard to miss. The wagon family truckster. Eugene Levy probably sold him that. As you mentioned, Lori goes to investigate because everything is just a little bit too weird with people not responding to phone calls, lights being turned off the entire time. She is going to find out what's going on. This is a significant section for me because this is the part that drives home why we watch these movies. These sorts of fictional thrill rides that allow us to face these fears and anxieties without having to actually truly think about the ramifications of this stuff are extremely important. A lot of people probably aren't very comfortable with the idea of thinking about what actually could happen. When I think about this stretch of time that passes in the film and what I could do or what some other determined person could do in our neighborhood, for instance, if we were to go out sneaking into houses on any given night, but especially Halloween when there's a lot of commotion and costumed characters running around, dispatching four people and having it go completely unnoticed is not at all outside the realm of possibility. But to sit and truly think about the ramifications of that is a difficult proposition for a lot of people. So we put it in this fictional form where we can view it safely and ultimately everything turns out okay for us, the viewer. It's an important thing to be able to do. I just read this week this terrible article on Glamour Magazine's website where the author was positing that There's no way that anyone can truly enjoy horror films, which is one of the dumbest pieces of writing I've seen in a long, long time. And what was their position on this? Their position was that since they were so traumatized by watching The Ring at age 14 and not having seen really any other horror since then, it was so unappealing to them that they can't imagine how it could be appealing to anyone else. Blanket statement saying that because I don't like it, Obviously, no one else could like it or find any function or value in it. Completely discounting this notion that facing these fears in a controlled, ultimately safe environment where you as the viewer can, by proxy, examine these ideas, go through these experiences and come out the other side unscathed, 
completely discounting the psychological benefits of that process. Or even on a lighter note, this section and the section that comes after is so important and fun for me because it's the way I really understood why people want to yell at a screen. (laughs) Before I get too far away from that point, it's an important thing to be able to do to consider the intrusion of an unreasonable and determined evil because that exists and to pretend otherwise leaves you wholly unprepared for a lot of traumatic events that could befall you but approaching it as a thrill ride as fiction and not your own reality makes it considerably easier to process it makes me think about a film that we watched last night Penda's Finn which I know we'll talk about at some point later on and It was a really interesting, challenging piece of television writing. And there's a really important line in it, which is that there are these forces, generally conservative, which want to keep us children by preventing us from exploring, in this case, media that is challenging, heretical, revolutionary, thought-provoking, any of those things. And I would put that article writer in that camp of those people that I think for themselves want to remain children, it sounds like. I would say that's exactly what they want. Unfortunately for her, Lori no longer has that option because as she is investigating, she discovers the bodies of her friends littered throughout the house. Fate has arrived. And then some. As she stands cowering in the hallway, in shock, she and Michael have their first encounter. You see that beautifully placed small light come up as he is hiding in the darkness, highlighting that mask, and he attacks her for the first time. Lighting is something I wanted to mention, and I really hope people pay attention to in subsequent viewings. You've seen it earlier, but really it kicks in in this section, and I know that their economical lighting was from a place of necessity, but what it has resulted in are beautiful frames of intense shadow and carefully placed slivers of light and blindness and terror, and I find it to be really effective. Michael stabs her in the shoulder, but she escapes. She falls down the staircase, runs out the front door, runs across the street to the house where she is babysitting. And she is running. Michael never runs. He walks. And that is very scary. He's never going to stop. He doesn't have to run. He moves inexorably forward. He is always there. She gets in the house in the nick of time, tells the kids to go hide, and realizes too late that she has not secured the house. He comes up from behind the couch, misses her again, and she stabs him in the neck with a knitting needle. She's done enough to kill any normal, mortal human being. But none of his reactions have been particularly normal or mortal. So you still have to be thinking, don't you, that something's going on, something odd is going on. But each time she has the opportunity to hang on to a weapon, she typically drops it. And you yell at the screen. Yes. I also write in my notes, dumbass. (laughs) But as with many killers to follow, he is not dead she is not safe. In the first of his many resurrections, he gets up again as she is telling the children to go 
get help. They run out the front door screaming while she remains upstairs. She chooses the worst possible hiding place, (laughs) which is a closet with slatted doors. Maybe behind a shower curtain would be only comparably worse. And he shakes the doors and can't get in somehow. And having had doors like that, they basically fall off when you look at them. But it's not nearly as effective as when you smash them to bits. Definitely. Which he does and leans into the closet to continue his assault. In the meantime, she has undone a hanger and pokes him in the eye with it, causing him to drop his knife, which she then takes and stabs him in the stomach with. And in a smart move, she comes out actually holding it in front of her. There's a lot of stuff going on here. Subtextual penetration. Finally, finally, we have seen her now penetrate him three times with a knitting needle, a clothes hanger, and now finally this knife. However, she decides to take a breather, (laughs) relax for a little bit. He does that crazy sit up at the waist. He's got serious core strength. When I first bought my Michael Myers costume for Halloween years and years ago, I used to practice that. I would lay in the kitchen floor and practice that sitting bolt upright until I could do it flawlessly. You got some problems a little bit. I'm going to get my mask right now. Please don't. Please don't. One of these days you're going to come home from work and I'm just going to be no, sitting on the couch. No, don't tell me. Don't tell me the rest. Don't tell me the rest, please. Loomis, being alerted by the kids screaming and running down the street, goes to the house and arrives just as Michael is finishing his sit-ups regimen to shoot him, knocking him out the window and off the balcony, ostensibly saving the day. But again, with each shot, he has that uncanny movement. So it's quick jerks and then falling in one piece. So I'm still thinking, oh, something's up. Well, something is up because they go to where he was and now he's gone. In fact, the final shots of the film review all the places he's been and you hear the breathing behind the mask in the background and we see this catalog of all these places that he has been and potentially could be again. Do you find this ending to be effective now that we've seen it so many times we've seen so many iterations of it and everything that came after can you go back and watch the original this template for everything and still have it be as scary i am possibly not the right person to ask that question of because you know you've seen me watch scary movies multiple times and i jump at the same points I'm frightened by the same things. Those fears don't really go away. And I haven't actually seen many of the other iterations, the sequels or the remakes. I did see the Halloween 2 remake. So it has preserved itself for me really well. And probably in that same way that you had mentioned the damage that could be done in a town like ours with a small amount of time, Unlike the article writer in the Glamour piece, those fears don't go away and I'm glad to actively deal with them every time. So if we think about the outcomes for these three characters, Lori, Dr. Loomis, and Michael Myers, are their endings satisfying? Are they still terrifying to you? They are to me. They're satisfying maybe, but not necessarily terrifying. And the satisfying part comes from the storytelling traditions that they are a part of. 
you've got a number of ancient storytelling ideas in this. The escaped lunatic, the damsel in distress, and the Ahab character. The Ahab character is somewhat secondary for me. The most important part is that axis of Michael and Laurie. The things that we were talking about earlier, about him being the physical embodiment of faceless evil, it works for me in the way I mentioned in that that is what I gravitate toward, effectiveness and efficiency. And certainly Carpenter has distilled all of these archetypes into a sleek new model in 1978. But he's not completely without humanity. Because we do mention there's a moment where he's telling a joke, essentially to himself. There is a moment where he steps back and observes the work he's done. Where he pins Bob to the wall. So he's considering either Bob as an object or the fruits of his own labor. There are certain human things within him, do those things occupy a large enough space to suggest to you something as significant as a possibility for redemption? I think in the framework of this film, the fact that he is relentless, we mentioned that he walks, he doesn't run, we so often see him in daylight. He has a minimal backstory and basically no pathology. I don't think he's given the opportunity for redemption. Is it even the right question to ask, though, now that I sit and think about it? Am I trying too hard to identify with what should be impossible to identify with? Is the notion that he is stripped of all humanity his absolute defining characteristic? And am I doing the same thing, for example, that Rob Zombie did in building a backstory that attempted to get you to side with the kid from a very young age because you saw what a dysfunctional mess his family was. I think it is natural to consistently ask the questions why, to look for a reason, but it is so much better to not be given an answer. That's why we keep coming back, and I think we hope, most of us, that we aren't going to be told the answer, and we want to see what happens, but unfortunately, sometimes when we are, that book closes. The fact that he is given no opportunity for redemption isn't a bad or a good thing. I think it's a really interesting element that makes it rewatchable and makes the character endure. Well, as iconic a character as he is, I think the even more important character in the whole thing is Laurie. I think ultimately the legacy of this film is that of the creation of the final girl and what a far-reaching idea it is and the infinite interpretations of what exactly that means. We could go into it and spend another two hours. We're not obviously going to dissect it in that detail, but you've got Freudian readings, Deleuzean readings, feminist readings, anti-feminist readings. There are so many possibilities of places to take this archetype that it's astounding. But I do have a couple of questions for you about how you react to her in particular. What I'm most interested in is how you perceive the resolution. Is it that she was resourceful enough to survive her ordeal, or was it necessary that Loomis save her? She was certainly resourceful enough and heroic enough to put the children's safety over her own. Mm -hmm. She gets them out of the house first. When I think about the actual movement and the time that she takes to try to ward him off, 
that's a waiting game to a certain extent. That's waiting for either the kids to have gone to get help. She doesn't know that Loomis is there, but we're waiting for him to hear this and put these pieces together. But during that period, she's really just stumbling from one moment to the next. She doesn't particularly have the wherewithal until maybe the third iteration of him attacking her to keep a weapon with her. But she holds him off long enough to get Loomis to get there and to help her. Of course, he doesn't really save her because he doesn't have an adversary that can be killed. So she has done as much as he could possibly do. Yes, and neither of them are a match for the killer. So it's a triumph in a hollow way, which I feel like is a cheat for me because I often cheat in the podcast. So <laughs> I've answered without having to really take a side. I don't think you can stress enough how she was the first prominent example of the girl that fights back. I know I mentioned the damsel in distress as the form that this character is built on, but that's not entirely accurate. At no point is she simply waiting for someone to come to her rescue. She is noble and heroic, like you mentioned. She is resilient. She's clearly frightened, but with good reason. If you were to encounter the same circumstances, it would be hard not to be, unless you had received a considerable amount of training to deal with that sort of thing. Right, she's not in karate school, so she is as much of a fighter as she is allowed to be within the circumstances. And I do think it's interesting, like we mentioned, that she is not entirely virginal. She's not entirely pure. She just has not flowered yet. It's obviously a distinct difference between, say, this and European films, in which everyone that has sex dies in the American version, whereas in European films, the women are spurred to violence by their carnal impulses, which I prefer. And approve of. But ultimately, I think her character is satisfying in that you cannot reasonably ask for more from her. And as much as I love the character of Michael Myers, she is why I chose this for the show. There is no more lasting contribution to what might well be my favorite genre than what she represents. There is no better and more deserving final girl in horror than Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween. Well, I think that is an apt summing up, and it leads us into our recommendation portion okay. of the show. I'm sticking with John Carpenter for my recommendation. Okay. And it is They Live from 1988, which, now that I think about it, might actually have been my first John Carpenter film. It is the story of an unnamed drifter played by the wonderful Rowdy Roddy Piper, who discovers that the ruling class are in fact aliens who are concealing their appearance, and they are manipulating people in order to maintain the status quo. It also includes Keith David and Meg Foster, whom I know is one of your favorites. Now you're being sarcastic again. I am. I still don't understand why I think Meg Foster is great. You're welcome to your opinion. I think this one is a lot of fun. It's got great fight sequences in it. Terrific performances. I think the story actually endures as well. So, big recommendation from me. They live from 1988. Well, for my recommendation, we're going to go from watching the skies to checking out what's beneath our feet. And my choice this time is Raw Meat, otherwise known as Deathline, from 1972. Directed by Gary Sherman, 
starring Donald Pleasance, Norman Rossington, and Hugh Armstrong. Donald Pleasance is on the case again, this time hunting chuds in the London underground. I actually prefer this performance of Donald Pleasance to Halloween. It's not quite wake and fright level Donald Pleasance, but he is much more engaged and constantly doing those Donald Pleasancey bits of business that are lacking in Halloween. I also like how the tragic tone of this one sets it apart and I think above other horror movies from the early 70s. There is a melancholy undercurrent to the origin of this character that is living in the London underground and feasting on those that live above ground, as well as an element similar to your choice of class consciousness. It makes it more complex than the average exploitation fare. It's not often you get a healthy serving of pathos with your chud movies, so I highly recommend checking it out. So once again, two fantastic recommendations, Raw Meat from 1972 and They Live from 1988. And that brings us to the end of episode 32. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast there. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I would like to take a second to say thanks to everyone who gave us feedback or shared the show. Craig, Scott, and Drew at Fuds on Film. Doug McCambridge at the podcast Good Times, Great Movies. He really loved your song last time. Thanks, Doug. Aaron West and Mark Herney at Criterion Close-Up. The guys at FearCast. The Drunken Dork Podcast and the Naked Porch Podcast, Tim Lego, Mike Scharf, Travis Trudell, Philip Hurd, Amy Green, and of course Grindhouse Dave. And we got some great feedback from RJ Tugas, who wrote a really fantastic article about Van Diemen's Land on his website, Make Mine Criterion. And we also inspired him with our Top Hat episode to buy a Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers collection. My work here is done. And Jeff Duncanson also picked up The Exiles after he listened to our episode about that film. So it's nice to see that we are inspiring people to check out things that they have not seen before. So thanks for the feedback, guys, and I hope you enjoy those films. We are on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. If you would like to leave us a rating or review or subscribe to us there, you can certainly do that. We are on Google Play for you Android listeners. And finally... You can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 